Sabres Live is presented by Seneca Resorts and Casinos. Nothing else comes close. We are going to overtime! Marty Baron, this promises to be a learning experience here on Sabres Live Overtime as we are about to dial it up with one of the most well-rounded humans not to mention hockey people you will ever come across. Jerry Meehan played with the Sabres from the outset in the 70s as part of his NHL career that spanned nearly 700 games, but his mind was never not working. And, you know, Canisius undergrad, University of Buffalo Law School, still teaching today, assistant GM, general manager for the Buffalo Sabres over an incredible period of time that saw the retirement of Perot, the drafting of Turgeon, the trading of Housley, the acquisition of Howarchuk, the trading of Turgeon, the acquisition of Pat Lafontaine. Jerry Meehan is joining us, but to focus on one player in particular. Well, it is 30 years now this August that Jerry Meehan and the Buffalo Sabres made the great acquisition of Dominic Hasek from the Chicago Blackhawks. It was August the 7th, 1992. So we are in August of 2022. So that is 30 years. And to this day, probably the most significant trade the franchise has ever had to make. So how it got done, what they thought of Hasek, uh, you know, and how his place into Sabres history came about is uh, what we will talk to Jerry. But you're right, Jerry is amazing. Like there's certain individuals that when you talk to, you're just mesmerized. He is one of them. So I can't wait for the discussion. And when you're serious about the game, bet on Buffalo at the only sports books in Western New York. Seneca Resorts and Casinos betting counters are open daily and self-service betting kiosks are available 24-7 at all three locations. Whether you visit Seneca, Niagara, Allegheny, or Buffalo Creek, the sports lounge features the latest lines and multiple screens so you will never miss a play. The sports book at Seneca Resorts and Casinos, where the love of the game meets the thrill of the win. Jerry, does this time of year, in fact, conjure up uh, memories of acquiring Dominic Hasek for the Buffalo Sabres? Well, normally it wouldn't, but people are remembering it now 30 years later. So it's kind of on my mind and reflect upon it uh, and uh, obviously on his career. So, yeah, it, it, it's pertinent to the, I guess, the history of the organization and some levels of success. So, yeah. It's- Great so, to see that he's being recognized for his contributions. So I didn't realize because I always thought the trade and, and the, the the three-way trade all would have happened at the same time, but it didn't. Like you guys made the trade with Winnipeg in June and this trade with Chicago was made in August. So how does, did you have in mind that it was going to happen as a three-way trade? How did it all lead up to being so long between the first trade with Winnipeg and then finally making the deal with Chicago. Yeah, well, the reason for it was that uh, there was a league rule at the time that prevented the deal from being concluded directly at that time. And I don't recall what the rule was right now. I'd have to go back into the rule book. But we needed a a participating third party. And the Winnipeg Jets um, were accommodating in that regard. I had a good relationship with both clubs and managers. And uh, in order to accomplish the goal of getting Dominic to the Sabres and Christian to Chicago, 
regrettably, Stefan Beauregard was the player in between that had to be the um, the conduit by which we could include, conclude the deal and not uh, break any league rules. So it took some time. Obviously, I guess I checked the dates maybe a month and a half before the whole thing mm-hmm. went through. But it was always intended to be a route to for Hashik. So Beauregard knew he was coming to Buffalo, going to Chicago, and then back to Winnipeg. So he didn't put his house for sale in Winnipeg, did he? <laughs> I, I don't know, but it was very difficult, I'll tell you. I, really, I felt really badly for him because he did communicate with me that he was really happy to be coming to Buffalo. Oh. And, of course, you can't tell the player at the time that this may or may not happen depending upon the league rule and this is how it's going on. So we had to play the quiet game for six or seven weeks until all those wrinkles were smoothed out and able to conclude it. But, wow. you know, it was, it was that's the business of the world hockey these days. And there were often deals made that had to be creatively constructed so they could satisfy league rules and yet accomplish the goals of, of the teams. Would you say that your good relations with Winnipeg happened by virtue of the talks that led up to the Howard Chuck trade prior? Well, certainly, um, certainly Mike Smith and I, Mike Smith, the general manager of the Jets at the time, and I had a very open discussion, generally speaking, about the game, about the way it should be played. Mike was a very cerebral guy, he is a very cerebral guy. I think he has a PhD from one of the state universities in New York. I'm not sure. It might be Brockport. I'm not sure. But Mike was always open to discuss possibilities. And um, I think that, you know, that certainly could didn't hurt to have us both do a deal that we both thought was good for our teams and a benefit to both. So you you were targeting Dominic Hasek. We'll go back to when you first saw him and all of that, but was there any thoughts of maybe going after Ed Belfour or any other goaltenders at the time uh, that may have been available uh, on the market in the early 90s for, for your club? No, I, I, I really wasn't thinking in that regard. We had a number of goaltenders and goaltending prospects the goal with Dominic was to take a chance on giving an opportunity as a starting goalie to a player who had clearly demonstrated international capabilities. I had seen seen him play in the world championship stage. I believe it was in Vienna where he had a dominating play game and against the the red army team of the Soviet union, I guess in the world Mm -hmm. championships. And it just stuck in my mind that here's a guy that, while unconventional, as you know, Marty, as a goalie, uh, Dominic style can best be described as athletic beyond belief. Um, non-conventional, and a lot of the North American goalies were formula goalies, uh, and, and he didn't fit that formula. So it just seemed to me that this guy looks like he's a guy that can stop a puck under any circumstances and despite the pressure he's getting from the other team. And, and I knew he wasn't going to get a chance in Chicago and they were loyal to Eddie because he had, he had played very well for them. And I think he even won a, a Vezina there with Chicago mm-hmm. and, and they weren't going to give up on him and they knew they had an asset and they needed a quality forward on their team. Let's not forget that Christian was a very good hockey player. 
and 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 it wasn't as though he was going to somewhere in a lopsided deal. He was a very capable. Our problem with Christian was that we just couldn't get him into a role that suited his career ambitions. He was kind of stuck behind Pierre Turgeon and Dale Howard Chuck and and he wanted to be able to express his offensive abilities more than, than he was going to get a chance in Buffalo. So it was an accommodating deal for both players who needed a chance elsewhere with a better situation. Uh, you took a chance on Dom, uh, but I mean, maybe that's not fair to Christian Rotu because I spent too much time with Rob Ray and I heard a lot of stories from Rotu and, and Razor was not a big fan of Christian. Unfortunately, I don't know. if So was that part of like, okay, we're taking a chance on a player, but we're trading somebody that has talent, but doesn't not just his role was not, working with the team, but he was just not a fit in the locker room. You guys wanted to look somewhere else. Uh, I, I had no sense that um, the fit in the locker room had anything to do with my attitude towards you. That's more um, coaches players, thing, right? Like I, the coaches have the feel for the room and you're, you're, you're managing yeah. the, the, the players well, and everything. I, I, I believe that the locker room was a place for the players and the coaches. Mm-hmm. And, and the manager's job is not to intrude into that community because it is a tight-knit community. And the players always have, will have internally, will have differences of opinion. And whether uh, Razor and, and Christian didn't get along, hard to say, and I don't know that that's a fact. But the deal was made because the clubs made it, needed um something that happened, as I discussed before, not because of any dissension or any bad feelings that I was aware of in the locker room. I loved Rutu, <laughs> for, <laughs> for the record. So so now with revision, like if I'm thinking back, I'm like, eh, probably would have stung a little bit to lose him. But obviously there was, there was a significant change happening, Jerry, with this club. You had so many good pieces in place and you were trying to take that next step. I'm really fascinated as you talk about Hashik's style, his athleticism. Did you, as you, you know, ascended towards your position as general manager, but also having played nearly 700 games in the NHL, did, were you a student of goaltending along the way? Um, did you really focus on, do, did you take an analytical even before analytics were big? Like, you know, how, how did you view goaltenders and, and what else maybe made Dom attractive to you in that position? Well, I, I gotta, I gotta go back a little bit. If this is history day, we'll go back even a little more history. <laughs> um, I played for a very young team and we were all young players coming from other organizations. And the first couple of the years of the Sabres, we were very, very developing into a decent team. In those days, the expansion draft got the expansion teams probably the 23rd, 24th, 25th best player in an NHL organization, not the 35th, 38th, or 40th, as was the case with some of the later expansion teams. So guys like me, I was probably number four on the least depth chart um, coming out of junior. Um, uh, Obviously, Gilbert Perot was an extraordinary draft and was the whole linchpin behind it. But one of the things Punch did is that he understood the importance of goaltending. And he had been through two guys, 
one guy who had won Stanley Cups for him, Johnny Bauer. And Johnny Bauer was the kind of goalie that would stop everything regardless of whether it was coming to his unmasked face. Um, the next goalie that he brought in for the Sabres after his Leafs time was Roger Crozier. And Roger Crozier, um, I can only tell you that we would play games in which we'd get outshot 40 to 20 or 50 to 30. And we'd win games because Roger was the last man standing. And I always believe that when you have a quality team that's ambitious enough to expect to have playoff success, you have to have the goaltender with the last man standing capability. And what I had seen in, uh, in goaltending over the years, as you mentioned, Duffer was the fact that every great team is built around three things, a great goalie, a great defenseman, and a great centerman. And those three components are really, and there used to be a saying, strong up the middle means you're going to be strong in any, any situation. Mm -hmm. That's not to diminish the roles of other players, but so much of the game is played around the dominant center, the dominant defenseman, the dominant goalie that puck possession being so much. And when you don't have possession, puck stopping is the next most important thing. And so when you talk about analytics, you can say, what's the most important attribute of a goalie? Well, it's, it's not goals against. It's not, it's not wins or losses. It's basically save percentage and most importantly, save percentage in what they call high chance situations. And Dominic, in my mind, was the best goalie I'd ever seen in high chance situations, rebounds around the net, reactions to loose pucks, quick gloves, quick blocker. And the most creative thing I ever saw in a goalie was to drop his stick so he could use both hands to make saves. And nobody had ever done that. And when I'm watching that tape of the game in Vienna, one of the very first plays I saw in that early game was him two, doing two things. One, rushing out to get the puck and stop the play 50 feet from his crease. And the other was dropping his stick to make a save with his blocker glove and freeze the puck in the crease. And, and he was just, he just had that capability of accepting the role of I'm the last man at the post and they're not going to get a, a puck by me. Duffer, I guess Marion Gabrick never saw that video of Dom coming out of the net because he uh, was victim of that later when Dom was with Detroit. Jerry, Marion Gabrick with Minnesota came in to chase a loose puck, thinking he was going on a breakaway. Dom came out, slid, and Gabrick went like doing flips in the air, like because Dom uh -huh. came out to like almost the blue line to meet him there. So that's uh, anticipation, reading the play. That was Dom did well, and that's why he was able to do some of those things. Um, let me ask you this though. In 1991, I believe you guys hired Mitch Korn as a goalie coach, kind of part-time because he was doing stuff with Miami, Ohio. Nowadays, if a general manager is going to make a trade, they talk to their scouts. They talk to their assistant general manager, the analytics department, their coaches. Maybe they call players around the league and they say, hey, have you played with this guy? People they know, what is he like? They, they get to know everything. When you made the trade for Dominic Kashek, did you talk to Mitch Korn? Did you talk to anybody? Was that basically you and a very small circle of people that you were letting in on the trade? 
it was it was not uh, starting with what you mentioned earlier, which is you talk to everybody. That in those days, there was nobody to talk to, yeah. other than within your own organization. And in those days, people kept their mouth shut mostly. Um, you did not share your personal information. You, Marty, you know the difference now between salary disclosure before yeah. and after. Salary disclosure changed the game, and we had no knowledge of other clubs what they're making. We were at the mercy of agents. So every once in a while, we would create a special bond with another manager. I mentioned Mike Smith and I got along. David Poyle and I communicated a lot. But there was never any discussion about, do you, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of that guy? Now, that was my way, too. I, I kind of felt that you had to keep your own information close to the vest because you never know where it goes next. And that, that attitude was what I tried to con convey internally. So we would have um, we would have discussions about where the team was needing to go. I mean, staff, as you say, is always part of every discussion we have. But the unique thing about a general manager's role in those days was it's pretty much a, a one-man show. It's not, it wasn't, um, we didn't have all the information we have now, and we didn't have the numbers of people we had now. I had to do the analytics in my own mind. Everybody thinks that analytics is some magic tool that all of, all of a sudden just came out of nowhere. Analytics is simply an extrapolation of, of statistical information to another level aided by computers and algorithms to allow a more intense, detailed, dig into it kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. But the same basic stuff, you know, you know, uh, an offensive player is best known by, by two things, goals, assists, and the third thing is plus minus, because you got a guy who scores 40 goals, but he's minus 20. He's not much use to your team. And if you, but, but so analytics really is, digging into more deeply with the assistance of computers and specialists at it. But in those days, the analysts were all, basically you have your director player personnel or your direct, your assistant general manager, and we would sit and have general chats generally about where the team needs to go. But at the end of the day, in those days, the general manager had to sit down in his own mind and make a decision and do what he had to do to make the team better in his own mind, as well as with the support of his staff. I have to tell you, Jerry, I'm sitting here fascinated by everything you're saying, and not the least of which was your references to Roger Crozier and Johnny Bauer, because I'm not sure many people have connected the dots <laughs> the way Dom's career actually followed both of those guys. Johnny was AHL for so long, later in life became this legend and Stanley Cup winner. So Dom ended up having longevity, certainly in his career. And we also know that Roger Crozier was the best at save percentage. They had the Roger Crozier Saving Grace Award for a number of years for his save percentage. What did Dom do? Led the league for six straight years. Is the king of save percentage. It's, it's amazing yeah. how you can weave those incredible historical names to help put into context what, what Dom ultimately became. Now, I'm also still kind of wondering you were so excited, presumably, to bring Hashik in and give him a chance, but it wasn't like Dom had this great start with Buffalo, and it wasn't like he all of a sudden became a number one guy. What were you, what were you thinking when when Hashik started getting his reps and and the time it took him to establish himself here in Buffalo? Well, 
Remember, we had we had uh, another goalie that had some level of reputation in the league at the same time, and and uh, Grant was a an older goalie who had been through the wars. My thought was always that you know um, hopefully Grant would be the superstar goalie for us that that he was for Edmonton, um, but I think um, my sense of it was that's not deep enough in an organization that is going to have to play high-level hockey against other high-level teams to be successful. And to have a backup that was no less than potentially a number one to come in at any time was probably the thought. Now, was I, I don't recall being concerned as much about him not being a number one as making sure that the tandem was backed up properly with each each person, so um, it was it wasn't as though we were bringing him in with the full expectation that whatever number of years later he even had a career and they say percentage of nine thirty or nine forty whatever it was. But the idea was that you need depth at every position. Uh, we had a player who was not happy. Uh, playing in Buffalo, not because he didn't like Buffalo, but because he wanted a better opportunity to show it all this. And and it looked like the right fit. And we were getting back at the very least a high quality um, goaltender who had shown in the backup role in Chicago that he could be a winner and that he could be a high level save percentage guy as well. So to me, the world championships experience, his world junior experience is his, his apprenticeship with Chicago was enough to convince me that this was a safe bet. So you had John Mockler as a coach who actually knew Grant Fuhrer from his time with the Edmonton Oilers. So he was comfortable with that. And you bring in Hasek. Was there any moment that you recall where you're on the press box? And as you said, the locker room, the coaches make the decisions with the players and everything, but you're sitting there in your office on the press box and you're like, Oh, I, I wish Dom was in that. Like, I, I want to see him more. Like, was there a moment where maybe you second guess certain decisions? Not that you were going to go make us think about it, but you just were hoping maybe to see more of Hashek uh, where maybe the chance was given more to Grant. Um, that, that's a bit of a difficult question to answer. The answer generally is, back to what I said about the team in the locker room. The only person who really knows the mood of the locker room and who's not sick and who's in a good mood and who's on top of things is the coach and, and generally the assistant coach. By the way, the assistant coaching role is often overlooked. And at that time we had two assistants, Don Lever and and um, and a, a gentleman who went on to some yeah. great that's John Tortorella, of course, yeah. as we all know. And John had a very capable group supporting him. I mean, these two guys were really good at their jobs. And both had, had great, one had a great playing career as well as a coaching career. And John obviously has gone on to some great stuff himself. Not surprising, a very smart, intense guy. Uh, so John Muckler was very, you know, a strong, strong-willed guy. He knew what he was doing and knew what he wanted. But as a general manager, you kind of leave the locker room alone until a crisis either hits or a crisis is imminent that you find out about. And at that time, they were, their locker room was still sorting through its dimensions of 
the starting goalie, who's healthy, who's ready to go. And, and I think that, you know, obviously John, because he had a lot of faith in, in, in Grant, um, that's his job as a coach is to make that decision. The general manager should not run back and forth from the locker room to the press box and, and dictate policy. As you all know, it's the general manager's job is much more long-term and visionary, if that's a fair word, than the coach whose job is, he, and not only is his job to win every night, an, a good coach knows his job is going to be winning every night. Like he accepts that responsibility. So his day-to-day decisions are done on the basis that I'm winning tonight. And I'll figure out tomorrow with practice for the next one. The general manager is always looking past game two and three and four and say, analyzing the team and, and trying to figure out where the gaps are and getting better. And, uh, and, you know, at that time, John and his staff were figuring out what the goaltending situation might be going longer term. And as it turned out, Grant suffered an injury that gave Dominic his chance ultimately in the playoffs to be a more every night goalie. Well, I'll give you a fair warning. So one of my, like, one of the movies I really like is Moneyball with Brad Pitt. It's a baseball movie. But in the movie, Billy Bean, the general manager, he has this friction with his manager, right? Because he wants certain guys to play and the manager doesn't want to play them. Now, historically, I don't know if that's true. There's some, you know, rumors that maybe it was just to make the movie, you know, the way it is. So if I ever write the movie about Dominic Ashik, I'm going to have a scene where you come into John Muckler's office and you're mad and you're pounding your fist on the, the, the desk and it's like, I want Ashik to play tomorrow. Darn it. And so I'm, I don't know that, that obviously I don't think that really happened, but I'm going to write that scene in. So I'm sorry in advance if, uh, if I'm offending anybody. So I'm just letting you fair warning. I'll take no offense, Marty, if you decide to do that, but uh, there'll be a qualifier. Um, the reason, <laughs> the reason John Muckler came to our organization, uh, was to bring a championship pedigree, not only from his coaching perspective, was also the idea that there's something this gentleman has been through, not just in Edmonton, but an entire career that might add some real wisdom and depth to our organization. And he came to us, I, I brought him in um, at a time when we were basically struggling with getting past the first round. Yeah. And there was a number of reasons why that was happening. And I was fully aware of what it was. But sometimes you need to have somebody with a different voice and a, and a, and a different message that's delivered. And John originally delivered it as my assistant. Um, but it's never the same if you're sitting in a manager's chair. And, and, and when it became necessary for me to make a change in coaching, John was there and, and uh, took on the responsibility, um, I think with great, with some reluctance, because he wanted, he liked being on the off management side of things and he was getting his feet wet into that. But it was something the organization needed and, and, he, and I just thought the message from that level would be a different level of message than my message or uh, the coaches, current coaches message or other messages. And, and I think it was the right thing to do for the organization and to have them there um, making decisions on rosters. Now, remember this is before the other elements of Moneyball, you paint a nice dramatic picture 
but the other elements of Moneyball was, first of all, they couldn't afford to keep Johnny Damon and, yeah. and, and John Bree and all the other players. So uh, instead of coming up with a solution that said, we're going to get another player at the same level with the same money obligations, we'll find other players to do the same thing in groups. Uh, and that's the role of analytics because you can't do it without finding those little nuances about a player's performance that tells you about certain things. I mean, a 245 batting average doesn't tell you the guy hits 500 when guys are running scoring position. So that's the kind of thing that, that I think we didn't have then. So, you know, we relied on, on the collective wisdom of an organization with people that had played, people that had coached, people that had won. And, and I think that was the way to go. And um, I would say that the only time I ever, I would ever have questioned it would have been at uh, another time, a later year, if he hadn't got a chance to play as he did. Now, I didn't notice he from the stats, he played 28 games, unremarkably. So you could argue that, well, why would they give him a chance if he's playing so unremarkably? Mm -hmm. And I think that part of it. Dominic was finding his way with our team. We were finding our way with a new coach. Uh, and our, our, um, our collective wisdom was, let's see how this rolls out. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're such a great storyteller. This is obvious. Yes. This is amazing. And, and so I want to ask when, like one of the greatest games in Sabres history is the Mayday game. And we all love Brad. But to me, the most fascinating part of the Mayday game is that Dominic came in after Grant had been terrific to start the series and stake Buffalo to a 3-0 series lead. Dominic comes in in the second period, immediately gives up a shorthanded goal. <laughs> now you're down 5-2, and he slams the door the rest of the way, allowing Mayday to happen. What do you recall about that night and watching everything unfold as it did? Well, it was uh, having the lead in the series probably was at that level was probably uh, unexpected. Um, I guess we were fully prepared to accept the fact that this, you never accept the fact that you're going to lose, but the implication might be the odds are that this game is not retrievable and that we're going to be going back to, you know, game five and see if we can do it there. And, and the, <laughs> the idea that, um, um, we would make a comeback was, you know, you, you, Marty, you know yourself. You never think you're out of a game. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. <clears throat> the athletic spirit and the competitive spirit just is what drives us to become athletes. And, you know, you put two athletes down in a checkerboard and they might have a fist fight over who won the game at the end. That's the whole idea behind athletic competition. So you never out of it till the game's over. I'm not going to use the old cliche, but the, uh, the idea that that we were on the verge of of winning a series and winning in some dramatic fa dramatic fashion was really quite you know intense. I mean, you can feel it—the tension building as you get closer and closer to the end. The next thing you know, you're going into an overtime, and here you are on the cusp of doing the first thing, uh, doing something you wouldn't be hadn't, hadn't been able to do in what I don't know how many years it had been. Ten years. It was it was pretty exciting beyond exciting. And then when he scored the goal and Rick Jenner made the call, it was kind of like historic. And uh, Brad 
Brad, as, we, as you say, we all love him, and he's a great storyteller in his own right. But he he made a beautiful move and, and, and completely fooled the Boston goalie. And at that point, we're just like, wow, here we are. And uh, and then, but you know yourself, Marty, you got one day to rest, and it's off to place 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 uh, face the Montreal Canadiens, yeah. who went on to win the Stanley Cup that year. So yeah, it was uh, beyond exhilarating. You mentioned Rick Jenner. Um, you did a little broadcasting. You, you before we started the interview, you you said that, in which um, I had forgotten about it. So that's great you reminded us. So um, as a manager, and this is probably back when you had games on tapes and you reviewed the tapes a little bit, whatnot. Did you watch it? Would get the volume on so you could get uh, you know the darling or our Rick Jenner, or did you have the volume down or did they bring the excitement in watching the game for you? How was your uh, memory of uh, Ted Darling and uh, Rick Jenner in, in that sense? I would, always I would always watch the game with the volume on. Um, in those days, we didn't have video coaches or editors taking care of programming that would cut it out. You know, we'd say, today you say, I want to see um, all the second period shifts by um, uh, Darlene, for example. Mm -hmm. And the video editor comes back with a little clip and show it, and, and well, no, he puts it on, the, on your screen. Now you've got the shifts Darlene played in the second period, so you can cut them down. In those days, we had to watch the whole game to find one shift we wanted to watch. So that the idea was we would have the volume on because I was so used to hearing the game while I'm watching it over the years, obviously from the time I was a kid, hockey was about not just watching, but listening to the voices of the people describe it, especially people of the of the quality of Ted Darling and Rick Jenneret, and because they knew hockey, uh, they weren't you know a, a broadcaster. Well, I played in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they had radio of the games there, and I played my first year pro. And the radio broadcaster would be the telecaster or the, the sports guy from the local radio show. And it was really not quite what it should be because they weren't hockey people. You know, Ted Darling grew up in the, in the, in the salt mines of broadcasting, as you probably know, graduated from Ryerson and went through Northern Ontario and a bunch of different places and ended up being close to a hockey night in Canada caliber. And you don't get to hockey night in Canada caliber without being a top-notch guy and, and person, personality. And, you know, Rick Jenneret obviously goes without saying is a, is, a, is a great guy. He'd been doing radio and Sabres radio stuff since the team's inception, I believe. He worked with a guy from St. Catharines. I forget his name, but he was a legendary um, broadcaster, radio guy. And Rick was sort of his understudy in that, but started on the radio in Buffalo and These are just old-fashioned hockey men that knew what they're doing. So they told a story about the game. But what Ted Darling told me something very early on. He said, Jerry, he said, in the, you're the analyst, and your job is to tell the fans what they should be looking for in terms of the game itself. Don't try to tell them too much or too little. It's a very delicate balance because if you, if you talk over the play, you're destroying their ability to appreciate the play itself with their own eyes and their own experience. And, and Ted was, I think, a master of, of um, brevity in the sense that what he said really meant a lot, but he also sometimes would let the play go. And I think the best broadcasters these days, like you guys, 
we'll let the play tell a story as well as what you say during the broadcast. So yeah, they were, I would always listen to the volume of wherever it was. So St. Louis, Dan Kelly, Montreal, Danny Gallivan, uh, Toronto in those days, Foster Hewitt and, and uh, his son. And, and that, that would, that's what gave you the feeling that the game was not just something to stare at and try to figure it out. But the, the, the work of the, of the uh, team telling you what to be watching for, how it went down, is a very important element of, of the analysis then. Now today, I guess, you'd end up with a short edit of very specific things. But that's not going to give you the feel of the game, which watching the whole game does. So those broadcasters became like your pro scout as you're listening, you're listening to their analysis and what they're saying. And you're, 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 because they're giving you an idea. Sometimes it's a team maybe you haven't seen and you're listening. And so you probably had them on the payroll as your pro scouts. <laughs> well, we, we would buy them a coffee and a, and a, and a, and a meal in the press room. That's what they got for <laughs> But you're right, because those guys were, they lived with the team. I mean, it was just, It was just amazing. Now, the other thing to remember is that, you know, I got my start. My first year of pro was the first year of the first expansion, 12 teams. And, and the first year the Sabres uh, was, um, what, 14 teams, I guess. So we're talking about instead of 32 teams now, you guys got to keep track of them. You must have to use analytics in your own world to stay in touch with what's going on. Um, today, with, with the, the number of teams and the number of players, the reason for analytics is use and its, its value is you can keep track of players to be attentive to, and you can analyze transactions and their play by reference to charts and graphs that maybe make, make sense because there's so much to cover and so much information these days. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt uh, the broadcasters were, were really the 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 part of the anal analytical skills you might get on visiting and watching other teams i mean we were on western new york buffalo ontario we're talking about a lot of places to watch hockey in those days certainly um and you mentioned your own experience as the league was expanding this is not to be overlooked when thinking of dominic hashik coming to buffalo We were very much living in this expansion era for the NHL as San Jose had come in, Tampa, Ottawa came in, and Florida and Anaheim were about to come in. Dominic was on waivers at least once as a member of the Sabres, correct? Because of the expansion draft? Well, um, I, I, I'd have to go back and, and check the record on that. Um, in, <laughs> in those days, Waivers, how do I say this delicately? Waivers were, were um, a way for you to test the market for players who might be of interest to other teams. And there was, there was two types of waivers, recallable waivers, which gave you 48 hours to call them back. Or at the end of 48 hours, if he was still on waivers, he could be picked up by any team. If he wasn't picked up, he was still on your roster. But waivers was driven by the idea that under the original six uh, um, model, teams could hold on to players forever and stick them in the minors forever. 
and long, long stories about players who never got their chance, who should have got their chance. And the waiver draft was instituted. The waiver draft came in, I'm not sure when, but probably late 60s. Uh, the waiver draft came in for clubs to be able to tell the rest of the world, these are my key players. Here is the, all the other players who are not on the protected list. And take your shot at any one of them. You pay me a small amount of cash for me if you like them. But you could only lose one player in waivers, in the waiver draft. You couldn't lose more than one. But now when waivers came in for what they call recallable waivers, you could put a player on waivers to see who might have interest. And then you'd call around to find out what your attitude might be. And in those days, it was kind of a gentleman's agreement among general managers that you didn't play around with that. If you were serious about a guy, you, 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 you did it. You didn't, you didn't manipulate the process so that you just play games. It was, but you would always basically find out before you were going to lose a guy that mattered to you, like a Dominic Asher, that there was a way to recall him if there was intense interest. But, you know, in those days, as we go back to it, the goaltending style model of goaltenders had not accepted the European goalie. Um, I mean, the European goalies now, Marty, you're the expert on this for sure. European goalies now um, probably populate 50, 60% of the teams, at least one goalie is a European goalie, either a starter or a backup. And, and um, that's a guess, I suppose, in terms of numbers. But you look at the top ones, the last, you know, obviously Vasilevsky and, and on and on. But the idea that this kind of goaltender was anything more than a backup or a long shot, and people probably would have been looking for starters in their mind, which he hadn't reached that level yet of taking the game. What was your first, and as we go back to Dom, because obviously 30 years since uh, the trade happened in August of 92, um, what was your first, or do you recall your first conversation? Could Dom speak a little English? Because we all know, like we've, It's been well documented the way Dom speaks, right? I don't know. I don't know, Jerry. I know I, I must see, I must see, you know, I go down, I make save, I must see. Like that is how he spoke. But what was, if you recall your first conversation with Dom, did he speak any English at all? Was it really bad or was it passable? Well, you know, other than a training camp greeting, welcome to the team. Um, I probably had, you know, I've had more conversations with him since than at the time. Um, <laughs> but um, again, you know, the trades made, welcome to the team. You talk to them on the phone or in some cases, if they don't have strong English skills, yet their agent tells them they've been traded and they show up for training camp. I mean, that might have been more like that at the time. Um, but he'd show up at training camp and I would be there and, you, you know, Some of you remember Saberland, where we were training yep. in those days. We'd go out there and uh, say hello and watch the games and turn the team over to the coach and the staff. That was about as far as the communication went. I mean, if you had a great game, you're in the locker room, you kick him in the pads and say great game, things like that. But, you know, it was, it was probably, even in those days, I don't know if it's still the same, but especially for Euro European players coming from the communist system, The general manager was like, sort of like the bureaucrat in charge of things. <laughs> you can think about that. So, and again, as I said, I basically, you, you know, you assemble the team, you put it together, you 
send out the training camp invitations and they show up and you make a speech to everybody on the first day of training camp and say good luck and see you on October 1st for opening night. Yeah, he probably didn't want to see you coming. Like in his mind, I was no good. If he saw you walking towards him, he was like, oh no, please don't come my way. <laughs> in, your wildest, in your wildest dreams, Jerry, could you have ever imagined the legacy that Dom created upon coming to Buffalo and having the career he had? Six first-team All-Stars, six Vesnas, two Hearts, two Pearsons. Well, yeah, I'd like to take credit for being a genius and saying, yeah, I knew all about that stuff. Totally expected it to happen. But we all know how it really happens. You identify an opportunity or a, or a need on your team. You look at the players who might be able to help you. And you do the analysis in those days, which was what we discussed earlier. And you make the deal with the expectation that you're doing the right thing, well thought through, well determined. Mm -hmm. And what you're expecting to get is a capable pro. Um, the worst outcome can be is a guy you bring in that has absolutely no, no value to your team after having uh, given up an asset. But you're looking to have, you're hopefully looking to replace the level of play that the player you gave up. Um, was performing at his position. And I had no doubt that Dominic was able to be uh, certainly a, what I would call a, a, a successful NHL goalie. Marty knows what that means. Um, capable of helping your team to get it, become a better team. Um, to see it explode into that kind of a career is, is a combination of luck, uh, good judgment, serendipity, and all the rest. Marty. I, was say, I, I, I am like, to be honest with you, Jerry, like I am amazed with number one, your current knowledge of the game. Like you're right. The best goalies are European goalies and Vasilevsky and Shesterkin and, you know, Saros and Markstrom and you can name them like European goaltenders dominate. Uh, but, you know, the way that you had to work as a general manager and the way to understand how it's working now um, is, uh, is, is, is amazing. So I'm, I'm sitting here in awe. I'll be honest with you. I know I've had many conversations with you at golf tournaments and other alumni events, but to be able to spend this time and, and talking to you right now and really getting in the deeper stuff, like I'm, I'm sitting here just in awe of it. So that's why I don't, I don't get speechless often, but I am speechless now. <laughs> Well, let me let me just say that the, the one of the reasons why I I stay in touch with the game at a what I would call a very introspective level is because of my teaching role um, at, at at the University of Buffalo at this point. And one of the features that that has intrigued me, and and has since I've been out of the game the last. Well, since 96, you think I might have been out of the game, but I haven't been out of the game. I've been doing consulting work with NHL teams, with leagues. I ran a major junior team in Canada for a couple of years. Um, I've been consultant to multiple uh, businesses in the world of sports, principally hockey, but also Major League Baseball. But the most, um, I think, compelling uh, impetus to continue to stay in touch is Obviously, when you're teaching kids how to 
be employed in, in the world of hockey and how to understand it if they want to go into the world of hockey, whether it be ex-players or regular students coming out of high school, you better be up to date on the information. You better watch games. You better pay attention to teams. And I will say the analytic process, which is part of it, has been very helpful. And of course, I'm going to pass some credit back to you guys because living here now, um, there are very few places in, in, in the hockey world that have such an intense interest in their sports teams, including the Bills and the Sabres. And with you guys on, and I watch pretty much all the games, come to some, but not as many because of the whatever reason, it's just easy to sit here and have a coffee and watch the games. But the idea that you're able to get the information and, and to be asked by you folks to, to make comments today means you gotta be up to date. You can't sit there and stumble around. And I, I find it a special interest at this stage of my life and career to be staying in touch and gives me a reason to um, read the papers and listen to you pros uh, mean, in a meaningful way every day. So I uh, appreciate your comments and uh, I will uh, hopefully continue to stay up to date on what's going on. Thanks to you guys. Well, I have one more for you, and maybe we've heard all three names already, but who would be your three favorite goaltenders of all time? Hmm. Well, that goes Roger Crozier, and not just because I played with him, but because I was a university student at the University of Toronto playing for the Toronto Marlies, and um, I think it was the 1964-65 Stanley Cup playoffs and Roger was with Detroit and he did for Detroit in that series what um, what he did for us in the games with Buffalo and I think seem to recall he was one of the only people maybe the only people to win a Conn Smythe trophy on a losing team so he, he'd be the top of the list um, obviously Dominic Hasek because of all the experiences he's had and, and my role in in his career is obviously of, of great importance. Now, number three, I'm going to think about number three. Hmm. I don't know. Number three, can't, can't they be, all be tied for number one or whatever? Of course. They um, <laughs> I, I guess one of the models that I would reach to is, is and it may, maybe, um, maybe not in terms of, of his bare out and out dominant play as much as his participation in a brilliant team as Ken Dryden. Mm -hmm. um, Dave Dryden was here with us in Buffalo and Ken, I didn't know what Dave, uh, Ken, well, I played against him in junior in Toronto. He played junior B against my junior B team. And, and he was always a very scholastic type and everybody knew he wasn't going to be playing major junior. And in those days, if you went to college before major junior, well, you couldn't go to major junior if you went to college, still can't. But you were considered not a serious candidate for a pro career. And he broke that mold, obviously. He came out of Cornell as a rookie, and I guess he won he won the, the Calder Trophy his first year um, and beat out our friend Rick Martin as the, uh, the Calder uh, winner. But... Um, he was what I would consider the, uh, one of the most dominant goalies, but also playing as a member of a dominant team. 
So he, he, he's, he's memorable from that point also. He being, obviously played great. He was a brilliant, big man with great reach and very athletic. But as a complement to that great team, it was a perfect fit. So I think of those three with an honorable mention to Johnny Bauer because I'll never forget, I was a member of the Leafs Black Aces in 68 or 69. And we were at a uh, afternoon practice. And in those days, he planned starting goalie, but he would come out with the extras in the afternoon, too. Um, I, I shot a puck into the empty net behind him. And he came running out of the crease with his big goaltender, and he slapped, slapped me across the rear end. And he said, never shoot a puck behind me when I don't have a chance to stop. And that told me something about the goaltending mentality, which was basically... We're back here for one reason. You can't sneak it by me, and I'm going to stop at any time you give me a fair chance. So I remember him very well for that, and he's a great ambassador for the game. Wonderful stories. Marty, last word to you. Uh, well, I want to thank you, first of all, for bringing and, and making that trade for Dominic Asher, because I got to play with Dom. I got to learn a lot from Dom. Well, I'm glad you did have a chance to, because... Uh, you can speak to him as a teammate and, and as a member of the locker room brigade. So good for you and congratulations on that experience. Jerry, thank you so much for today. It was an incredible trip uh, through many, many, many years of this organization's history. Greatly appreciated. I appreciate your time, guys. Good luck with the show. See you in the winter regularly. An answer to every question. Isn't he amazing? I, I think, and I love there's always a great importance to a pause, right? When you when you when you're carefully placing the words like any good lawyer would. <laughs> Man, whether he's talking about contract details or player performance, uh, those words from Jeremy and including his three faves there at the end with a bonus, uh, just a joy to listen to. I didn't make the list. Uh, maybe I was tied for fourth. So anyway, when he said it, any, anybody could be tied pause. for first, right? So that's it. That's what he said. So I figured I was tied for first uh, along the way, but you're right. Uh, and look, this is one of, uh, because of his advisor role that he's had over the years, he's very current on everything, as he mentioned. But if I was um, a general manager somewhere, like I would want to trust a person like Jerry with his knowledge, his brain, the conversation that we would have. So obviously fantastic, fantastic uh, guest on the pod this week. Is it easy for you to pick three faves when it comes to goaltending? Yes, very easy because I've enough. First of all, I go back to my childhood uh, and it's not like the three best or it's three favorite that stick in my mind for certain things. So one, my favorite to watch all the time was Mike Leon. When my dad would get tickets to the Quebec Nordiques in Quebec City, it was always against the Hartford Whalers because nobody wanted to go see the Whalers. They wanted the Canadians, the Sabres, the Bruins, the Rangers, the Flyers. So we got Whalers ticket, but I used to go down to the glass and warm up and watch Mike Leot, and he was tall. He had the big number one jersey, green Hartford Whalers, and he was so good. So Mike Leot was always my favorite growing up. Number two, I go to... What I used to do around Christmas time, I had the sticker books and then I would open the packs of stickers and put them and focus on the goalies. 
Pete Peters, the Boston Bruins at the time, had this amazing sticker. I remember in the one year, he had the um, the Billy Smith-like uh, helmet in cage. He was crouched into his position with a white Bruins jersey. Like, I loved it. So Pete Peters, I didn't know if he was good or not. He was one of my favorite because the picture and the sticker was awesome. And the third guy that just pops into my head right away is Daniel Berthium. And people are going to say, who? Yeah, he didn't play a whole lot, but I remember him with the Winnipeg Jets just because I used to draw goalies mm -hmm. and I love drawing him. There's a card and I pulled it up on Google right before we started doing this because I'm like, I remember the card. He had um, like 10 letter pads when the 10 letter pads were awesome. Blue blocker, a red Titan stick, really low. He was small. The net is huge behind him, but it was such a great like picture to draw. I used to draw him all the time. Pokey and the Bandit, that tandem with Pokey oh, Reddick yeah, and Daniel right. Bertium. Um, boy, it was it was really cool hearing Jerry talk about the Drydens. Um, oh. I mean, Dave, I uh, you know, Dave was was good here in Buffalo. Uh, had a had a good career in his own right as a pro, and much like his brother Ken, just such so good at articulating the nuances of the game. And yes. uh, so it was nice to nice to hear that name back into prominence. I, I would say this, Marty. I mean, obviously, it was funny when you said tied for first, because that's kind of how my introduction to the Sabres was at a young age, because it was Solvay and Edwards, Solvay and Edwards, Solvay and mm -hmm. Edwards. And, you know, so they shared the Vesna and they were very similar in stature and drafted in the same year. And, you know, it, they're almost inseparable, you know, in my memory bank, as far as yeah. goaltenders in blue and gold. But I think uh, largely because he caught with the right hand and because his name would have been out there in commercials and because he was absolutely brilliant, Tony Esposito would have been yes. the first that I would have tried to mimic when <clears throat> playing street hockey. I remember distinctly taping a piece of plywood onto a hockey glove and putting 35 on it for Tony Esposito. Um, and, and, and not that Edwards and Solvay weren't favorites, but I think the first favorite, if you will, where you're really emulating the broadcasters like Darling and Jennerette, Barrasso, you know? So oh, yeah. it, 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 was, it was definitely Tom with his incredible entrance into the NHL. Um, High school to the NHL as a goaltender, like and Vesna and, and Calder, like and amazing. Vesna and Calder right away, like that is never going to be done again. So, and then obviously, the man that we spoke of on the show today, like we continue all these years later to learn and appreciate even more about Dominic Hashik's ability to play the game. I, I think that might end up being his greatest legacy is how, as the years go on, you just hear more and more and more about how he did it. So I remember my first year in Rochester, 97, 98, I came to a game in December of 97 to come and watch the Sabres and Dom had gotten like six shutouts in the month of December. It was like crazy. Every time you showed up to a game, you're like, there's a good chance he's going to have a shutout today because he was that dominant. Uh, but I still say this, when I came to my first camp in 95, I looked around the goalie room. I was like, I'm making this team. I'm better than all these guys. Who am I kidding? The thing that I was better 
than the great Dominic Hasek. Maybe it was just being naive or just uh, very confident in myself, but there's there's no one better. There's no one better. He is yeah. not tied for first. He is number one. Well, thanks to our a terrific production team, uh, as always, for putting Sabres live overtime together. And of course, a great thank you once again to Jerry Meehan for joining us this time around. We'll see you soon.